I recognize that at this stage uh, of their career, U2 concerts are primarily filled uh, with middle-aged white people. But I'm a, I'm a middle-aged white guy who uh, turned 16 around uh, the time the Joshua Tree was released. So I still look forward to every new album that they release. And just this month, uh, they released Songs of Experience, which is, I'll, I'll just say it's growing on me. Uh, but it's, it's interesting how different reviewers have reviewed this album. They, they kind of sp- cover the spectrum. Uh, one, ti- one review is titled, An Insipid Tryhard. Uh, another one said, Has You Two Run Out of Things to Say? And then another one said, Songs of Experience is their best album in years. Like, are, are these guys listening to the same music? But my favorite article, or the title at least, was this. U2's political, unstoppable, grading cheerfulness. Songs of Experience, the band's 14th album, offers unsolicited therapy to the nation. And then the writer refers to U2's what he calls reckless cheer. He says what makes them out of step with 2017 is their commitment to uplift and complains about their stridently insisted upon joy. Now, I suggest uh, that you that two does see the darkness of, light, of life. In fact, I'm going to illustrate that for you from one of their songs here in a second. But they're not simply denying the darkness and insisting that we all put on a happy face in the midst of it. Rather, I'd say, as Bono had said, they're defying the darkness. And they're defying the darkness by pointing us to light in the midst of darkness. But here's some of the darkness uh, from their song it's the little things that give you away sometimes the air is so anxious all my thoughts are so reckless and all of my innocence has died sometimes i wake at four in the morning where all the darkness is swimming and it covers me in fear sometimes i'm full of anger and grieving so far away from believing that any song will reappear sometimes the end is not coming it's not coming the end is here Sometimes when the painted glass shatters and you're the only thing that matters, but I can't see you through the tears. And so I, I, they, they get the darkness. They don't have their head in the, in the sand, so to speak, about the darkness. But in the midst of darkness, they're seeking to point us uh, to our only hope, to our only source of joy. And when you think about it, that's what Christmas does, right? That's what Christmas does every year. We celebrate Christmas on December 25th, which is three days removed from the longest night of the year. We celebrate Christmas during the absolute darkest period of the year uh, each year. And what do we do in the midst of that darkness? We fill our living rooms and our front porches and our yards and our cities with lights. Lights everywhere. When, when we do this, when we put all these lights up in the midst of the darkness, are we just like the writer says you too is? Are we simply committed to reckless, grating cheerfulness in a world that really isn't that cheerful? Are, do the lights of Christmas, are they actually pointing us to a greater light? Well, we're going to think about that this morning. and We're going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 9, and I'll read this beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later times, 
He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would meet us here. Perhaps we are even feeling a bit of the darkness in our own lives this morning. I pray that you would... Uh, shine the light of your Son into our lives uh, and bring us even joy uh, when things seem dark. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in Isaiah's day, the, the, the people, God's people in day, are living in gloom and anguish. If you would read the first few chapters of Isaiah, it's kind of a catalog, kind of a list of the sins of the nation. Materialism, idolatry, They don't care about poor people, drunkenness, pride, corruption. It's all there. Uh, And then they are, the southern kingdom of Judah is threatened by a coalition of Israel to the north and Syria. And instead of depending on God as King Ahaz has been told told to, he cries out for help to Assyria. Assyria comes in, instead of helping him, he wipes out Israel and Syria and then he invades Judah as well. And so the people find themselves living in a time of darkness. But Isaiah holds out hope to them by telling them it's, it's not always going to be like this. And he points them to a, to a day when the darkness will lift, when there will be a restoration of light and joy, when there will be an end to oppression and sin, and when war itself will come to an end. How's all that going to happen in Isaiah's mind? Well, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Matthew tells us, as Casey read for us in our Advent reading this morning, that Isaiah's prophecy is ultimately fulfilled in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the child who is born to Mary is the one who will bring light and joy. The child born to Mary is the wonderful counselor and mighty God and everlasting father and prince of peace. And so what I want us to do this morning is to think about this one, this child, who Isaiah and you two and Christmas all point us to. Uh, this child, Jesus Christ. And I think this is relevant to us because just as I, in Isaiah's day, the people were dwelling in darkness and waiting on the arrival of this child, we too know what it means to live in darkness and we know what it means to wait on the return of Jesus Christ to make all things 
you. And so we're going to think about this Jesus that we wait on. Uh, Four things Isaiah tells us about Jesus. He says he'll be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. Um, I've got four different map apps on my smartphone. Uh, Apple Maps, which nobody trusts, so don't use that. Uh, And then I've got one called Copilot, which is helpful when you you can't get a cell phone signal because it'll work just off of GPS. But it's not as robust as the other ones, so I, I usually don't use that unless I have to. And that leaves me with Google Maps and with Waze. And, and so what I'll do uh, is if I'm going through somewhere like Atlanta where you want to make sure you can get around traffic, is I'll have both of those going at the same time. And even though they're both now owned by the same company, they'll often give you conflicting directions. And so much of the light of my family will be going through Atlanta and your phone is like giving you all these different directions. It's just this cacophony of noises telling you go this way, no go this way. And in the old days when we still had the car GPS, she would be telling us something else entirely. And you're trying to determine, well, of all these routes, which is the best one to take? I think that illustrates for us how confusing it can be for us sometimes to navigate life. Because we've got all these voices coming at us telling us, this is the way that you ought to go. And some of those we can kind of discard out of hand, but we still have, even if we can cut a few out, we've still got thousands, sometimes it feels like millions of voices trying to give us direction. From Oprah to Ellen to Dr. Phil to our favorite blogger to to whatever we happen, random article we just pulled up on Google to the people we live and work and play with. We have voices from everywhere. And then we have this tendency, right, to kind of snuggle up to the voices that kind of reaffirm what we already believe anyway. And so we, we know this, we have this tendency about us. And in the midst of all these competing voices, Isaiah points us to another voice, the voice of a wonderful counselor. It can be translated supernatural counselor or a wonder of a counselor, a counselor who will both encourage us and challenge us. Uh, The New Testament book of Colossians says that all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are actually hidden in Jesus Christ so that he can give us wonderful counsel. The book of James tells us if we need this wisdom from Christ, then we're to ask for it. Isaiah, back in chapter 8, right before what we just read, criticizes the people for seeking wisdom from mediums and spiritists. And he said, should not a people inquire of their God? In the child who's born at Christmas, we have a wonderful counselor. Uh, A wonderful counselor whose wisdom amazed the religious leaders and the crowds of his day. And, And a wonderful counselor who still guides us by his word, by his spirit. Who still guides us through the counsel of people who know him and know him well. But when it's dark, when things are dark, um, when God seems absent, when things aren't going well, it's easy to turn to other voices, to go to other places, to even turn in on ourselves in despair instead of listening to God's voice. Uh, on the, the very last episode of House, which was when it ran, it was one of my favorite shows, 
House's best friend is, is dying, and, and he's kind of in denial. House is, Dr. House is in denial about the whole thing. And he tries to deal with the situation that way by denying it. He tries to deal with it by, with anger. He tries to deal with it by manipulating the situation. And then finally, he owns the fact that his friend's going to die, and he winds up in legal trouble himself. And to kind of cope with his own pain, he starts shooting up heroin, then he, then he finds himself passed out in a building and he wakes up and the building's burning down and it's, it's TV. But, but he gets into this situation and he's kind of pondering, do I try to get out of this building or I just, do I just lay here and die? Like, the, the, just let the darkness overtake. See, in, in the darkness, one of the biggest problems we have is listening too much to our own voice, our own self-talk. Which is why the psalmist says to himself in the midst of his trouble, Hope thou in God. Hope thou in God. In Jesus, we can hope thou in God. We have a wonderful counselor who brings us life-giving words. And we have to learn to give more weight to these words from Jesus than we do to our own words and the voices in our head. Jesus is a wonderful counselor. Secondly, we're told that Jesus is mighty God. Uh, there's a scene in The Last Jedi, no spoilers, everybody calm down, uh, where, where everybody though is, is relying on one Jedi, one mighty hero to stand between the good guys and the bad guys and to ultimately rescue them. That's their hope. Isaiah tells the people that the one who will ultimately come to deliver them is none other than the mighty God himself. And so the call to the people who are in darkness is to wait on and to trust in this mighty God. But you know, that it was a failure to trust in this mighty God that kind of got him in the situation to start with, that Ahaz wouldn't trust in this mighty God, and so he sought help from other places. And we, we know what that feels like, right? Like we, we know we're supposed to trust in God, but it's so easy to trust in ourselves. We, we hear stories every week about God's strength in the Scripture, we read about the Exodus. We read that God is our refuge and our strength and our ever-present help in times of trouble. We read that in the Psalms. We hear stories about how mighty God has acted in the lives of other believers. We can even think back to the ways He's acted in our own lives. And yet it's hard, isn't it, to give up on our own strength and our own intelligence and our own resources and our own connections. And so sometimes what God does is He leads us into places of weakness where we have to rely on the mighty God. Uh, in verse 4, Isaiah references Gideon and, and the battle of, of Midian, Gideon's victory there, where Gideon's getting ready to go in the, in, into battle and God twice says to him, basically, you got too many troops. We're going we're gonna to get rid of a few of these. No, no, you still have too many. Let's, let's cut that down a few more. So that Gideon would see that ultimately the victory in battle, that his salvation came from God and not from his own strength. Uh, J.I. Packer's got a, a book on weakness. And there's a, there's a great video online where he talks about weakness. I want to read you, read you uh, what he says in that video. He says, in our society, strength or at least imagined strength, is applauded. And weakness is thought of as a defect. It means that you miss the best in life. From the age of seven, I felt weak. 
I was chased out into the street by a fellow student at the school I attended. I collided with a truck. As you would expect, the truck got the better of the exchange. They were afraid my brain might have suffered as a result of the accident. I didn't use the word weak in those days to describe how I was feeling, but that was the word that catches the feeling. I have now reached a point in my life where inevitably I am wearing out physically. I can't have many more years to go, and as I'm conscious of wearing out physically, I find myself feeling weak. So I'm back with this theme of weakness because of what has happened to me, and what is happening to me now is an old man whose body is wearing out. God doesn't allow us to stay with the idea that we are strong. We may have that idea, but the Lord is going to disabuse us one way or another, and it will be good for us, and it will give Him glory when he does and then he quotes from 2 Corinthians 2 lest I should be puffed up because of the abundance of revelations that God has given me I was given a thorn in the flesh the Lord spoke to me and this is what he said my strength is made perfect in your weakness there's a uh, Charlie Brown comic strip where Charlie Brown's talking to Lucy she says, what, what are you worrying about, Charlie Brown? And he says, I feel inferior. And Lucy says, oh, you shouldn't worry about that. Lots of people feel that way. And he says, what, that they're inferior? And she says, no, that you're inferior. <laughs> maybe, maybe you feel that way uh, this morning. You, you feel inferior. You feel weak. Um, physically, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually. I'd argue that if you feel that way, you might be in the best position of anybody in this room. If you feel weak. Because our weakness is what opens the door to our experience in God's strength. The strength of a mighty God is made perfect in our weakness. So don't, in the midst of your weakness, don't look at your weakness. Look at His strength. Look at the strength of a mighty God who came in weakness as a child. He came and suffered so that we might know his strength. Uh, Jesus is a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. Thirdly, Isaiah tells us he will be called Everlasting Father. Now that that probably seems a bit odd to you. You're like, is Isaiah getting confused about the persons of the Trinity? Um, you know, Jesus is the Son and God is the Father. What's he talking about here? I think Isaiah is pointing us to a couple of things. One, he's pointing to the fact that Jesus is everlasting. And in saying that, he's highlighting Christ's divinity. Um, Jesus, in the words of Revelation 1.8, he is the Alpha and the Omega who is and who was and who is to come. He's eternal. Secondly, Jesus is the one who reveals God's fatherly character to us. He is the one who actually makes God the Father known to us. Here's how John puts it in his gospel in chapter 10. I and the Father are one. That's what Jesus says. And then a few verses later, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And then in John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus makes the Father known to us. Jesus acts to his people as a good and fatherly king who cares for us and protects us and shepherds us and disciplines us. Um, earthly fathers, we're, we're a mixed bag, aren't we? Uh, think of 
some well-known TV fathers. You've got kind but clueless fathers like Homer Simpson. Uh, you've got Hopper on Stranger Things who's trying to figure out how to be a father. You've got tension between Katie and Walt Longmire on that show. You have Bill Cosby who, I, I was reading somebody recently who said they were just getting ready to write an article about how Bill Cosby is the perfect model of a father when all that stuff about Bill Cosby came out. I mean, he was, he was the ideal, right? He was the dad you wanted your kids to grow up to be. So we're a, we're a mixed bag. Uh, many of us have been good, but imperfect fathers. Others of us have been not so good and even absent fathers. Uh, Steve Jobs, in the movie about Steve Jobs, his assistant is trying to get him to go spend time with his daughter. And Steve Jobs says, we're about to make an announcement that's the second biggest announcement of this century. And the first biggest announcement, he said, was when it was announced that the Allies won the war. And now us releasing whatever computer they're about to release. This is the second biggest announcement of the the century. We're going to sell millions of units. So cut me some slack about the kid. And some of us know what it means to to feel that, even if we have not said that. Some of us as fathers are, are weighted down by the guilt of our failures as fathers. But Jesus is one who takes away the guilt of our failures. He's an everlasting father, even the bad fathers. He shepherds us, and he loves us, and he cares for us. He's always near. He's not aloof. He's not distracted. He's not absent. And he's he's everlasting. Even the, the best fathers die. Jesus is a father to us who will never die. Uh, Charles Spurgeon wrote about this. There is no unfathering Christ and there is no unchilding us. He is everlastingly a father to those who trust him. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. Finally, Jesus is the prince of peace. Uh, Isaiah tells us that Jesus as the prince of peace will bring an end to war. That Jesus will bring peace on earth. It doesn't always, it doesn't feel like that. Like that hasn't happened in its totality yet, has it? It doesn't feel like that when we listen to the news. It doesn't feel like that when we see a fight break out on social media or in real life. How does Jesus, how's he going to bring peace on earth? Uh, In order to bring peace between people, there's a more foundational and fundamental peace that Jesus first has to bring. In order for there to be peace between man and man, there first has to be peace between man and God. And that's what the cross is about. Uh, The child born on Christmas was a child who was born to die. And he was a child who was born to die in order to bring peace between God and man. Uh, I just started watching a a show called The Good Place. And those of you who remember Ted Danson, he's one of the stars in the show, and it's about the afterlife. And in the first episode, this lady dies, and she goes to The Good Place, and she doesn't really understand how she's wound up there, and he's explaining to her how this works. And he says, basically, everything you've ever done is rated. Every interaction you've had with other people All the stuff you've done that maybe nobody knows about. The hours you've put in volunteering, it all goes on and we've got a rating scale and if you get over a certain number of points, then you come to the good place. 
And if you don't reach that threshold, then you go to the bad place. And the Bible says if that's how it works, if that's the case, then nobody's getting in. Nobody's going to make it to the good place. But that's where the cross comes in. The cross is about the the grace of God. The the cross is about God paying the price for our sin. The, The cross is about God taking the consequences of our actions upon Himself. The cross is about God satisfying His claims to justice so that we could receive grace. We don't get into the good place by running up a score. We get into the good place through faith in what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And that brings us peace with God. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the cross that brings about peace between God and man. And it's the cross that can bring about peace within ourselves and peace with others and even peace with our enemies. You may not know the name Kim Falk, but you've probably heard uh, of the Napalm Girl. Uh, she's the girl in the picture. This was a picture published in the early 1970s that just stunned the world and some people say really turned was a turning point in the Vietnam War. She was nine years old. She's running down the road unclothed with a soldier kind of looking at her impassively as she runs by when she was pictured. And I want to read you in her, in, in her words her story. She says, I was photographed with arms outstretched, naked and streaking in pain and fear, with a dark contour of a napalm cloud billowing in the distance. My own people had dropped bombs on Route 1 in an effort to cut off the trade routes for the Viet Cong rebels. I had not been targeted. I had simply been in the wrong place at the wrong time. Those bombs have caused me immeasurable pain over the course of my life. Forty-five years later, I'm still receiving treatment for the burns that cover my arms, back, and neck. But even worse than the physical pain was the emotional and spiritual pain. For years, I bore the crippling weight of anger, bitterness, and resentment toward those who caused my suffering. Yet as I look back over a spiritual journey that has spanned more than three decades, I realize the same bombs that caused so much pain and suffering also brought me to a place of great healing. Those bombs led me to Jesus Christ. My salvation experience occurred on Christmas Eve. It was 1982. I was attending a special worship service at a small church in Vietnam. The pastor delivered a message many Christians would find familiar. Christmas is not about the gifts we carefully wrap and place under a tree. Rather, it is about the gift of Jesus Christ, who is wrapped in human flesh and given to us by God. As the pastor spoke, I knew in my heart that something was shifting inside of me. A decade removed from the defining tragedy of my life, I still desperately needed peace. I had so much hatred and bitterness in my heart, yet I was ready for love and joy. I wanted to let go of my pain. I wanted to pursue life instead of holding fast to fantasies of death. When the pastor finished speaking, I stood up, stepped out into the aisle, and made my way to the front of the sanctuary to say yes to Jesus Christ. When I woke up that Christmas morning, I experienced my first ever heartfelt celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. I know what it is like to experience terror, 
to feel despondent, to live in fear. I know how wearying and hopeless life can be sometimes. After years in the spiritual wilderness, I felt the kind of healing that can only come from God. I had spent so much of my life running, first from the bombs in the war, then from communist Vietnam. I had always assumed that the flea was my only choice. Looking back, I understand the path I had been racing along led me straight to God. Today I live at ease. Yes, my circumstances can still be challenging, but my heart is 100% healed. My faith in Jesus Christ is what has enabled me to forgive those who had wronged me. No matter how severe those wrongs were, faith also inspired me to pray for my enemies rather than curse them. It enabled me not only to tolerate those who had wronged me, but to love them. No matter what type of pain or sorrow you may be experiencing as Christmas approaches, I encourage you not to give up. Hold fast to hope. It is hope that will see you through. This peace I have found can be yours as well. I pray that it finds you this Christmas. There was an opinion piece in the New York Times um, this week. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I I hope that you all, that we all have an amazing Christmas. But I pray that it's not just a brief, temporary, forced, nostalgic kind of joy that's going to wear off in a few days when, when life goes back to normal. I also pray that we don't get so caught up in the lights that we miss the one who is the light. I want to give the last word almost to you too. Uh, they have a song on their new album that's inspired by Psalm 13. Uh, and, and I'll just read a verse of Psalm 13. Consider me and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. And the song that they've written is titled 13, and in parentheses, there is a light. When all you've left is leaving, and all you got is grieving, and all you know is needing, If there is a light you can't always see, if there is a world we can't always be, if there is a dark that we shouldn't doubt, and there is a light, don't let it go out. And then the last chorus, they drop the if. Instead of saying, if there is a light, they sing simply, there is a light you can't always see. And then they finish this way, and this is a song. A song for someone. This is a song, a song for someone, someone like me. Someone like me. Someone like me. Y'all, the song of the gospel is a song for you and it's a song for me. It's, It's a song that reminds us that even at our darkest point, there is a light. There is a light. And his name is Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, uh, we pray, I pray that even if some of us are in a very dark place this morning, thinking that there is no way that there can really be light, that we're cynical about Christmas and we're cynical about everything else, I pray that you would point us to the true source of joy and light. Lord Jesus, would you reveal yourself to us uh, in the darkness, even this morning. We pray in your name.
Amen.